A popular software application serves billions of user requests. These requests could be for many different things, and the requests need to be routed to the correct destination, load balanced across different instances of the service, and queued for processing. Processing a request might require generating a detailed response to the user, or making a write to a database, or the creation of a file on a, on a file system, or maybe all three of these things. As a software product grows in popularity, it will need to scale each of these different parts of infrastructure at different rates. You may not need to grow your database cluster at the same pace that you grow the number of load balancers at the front of your infrastructure. Your users might start making 70% of their requests to one specific part of your application, and you might need to scale up the services that power only that portion of the infrastructure. Today's episode is a case study of a high-volume application, a monitoring platform called Raygun. Raygun's software runs on client applications and delivers monitoring data and crash reports back to Raygun's servers. If I have a podcast player application on my iPhone that runs the Raygun software and that application crashes, Raygun takes a snapshot of the system state and reports that information along with the exception so that the developer of that podcast player application can see the full picture of what was going on in the user's device, along with the exception that triggered the application crash. Throughout the day, applications all around the world are crashing and sending requests to Raygun's servers. Even when crashes are not occurring, Raygun is receiving monitoring and health data from those applications. Raygun's infrastructure routes those different types of requests to different services, queues them up, and writes the data to multiple storage layers, Elasticsearch, a relational SQL database, and a custom file server built on top of S3. John Daniel Trask is the CEO of Raygun, and he joins the show to describe the end-to-end architecture of Raygun's request processing and storage system. We also explore the specific refactoring changes that were made to save costs at the worker layer of the architecture. This is useful memory management strategy for anyone working in a garbage-collected language. If you'd like to see diagrams that explain the architecture and other technical decisions, the show notes have a video that explains what we talk about in this show. Full disclosure, Raygun is a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. John Daniel Trask is the CEO of Raygun. John Daniel, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you very much for having me, Jeff. Yeah, it's great to have you. You work on a crash monitoring system that handles a high volume of exceptions. So the way it works is whenever a user's application crashes and they're running your crash monitoring software, the exception that caused the crash needs to get recorded and indexed on your servers so that the developers of whatever application crashed can understand what is causing the crashes. So if I'm a developer and I'm building an app that plays podcast episodes and one of the users is listening to a podcast and then the app suddenly crashes, I would like to know about that as the developer of the podcast app so that I can fix the bug. And in order to know about the crash, I need it to be detected and reported And that's what your software Raygun does. And since a lot of crashes are going on across the world at any given time, your infrastructure is constantly getting hit with requests. 
Can you describe the requirements for what you have to do with each of those crash reporting requests? Yeah, absolutely. And I'll also just I'll just fill in a couple of extra bits there too. Please, so yeah. Raygun does work with about 25 different programming languages and platforms. So mobile devices, so through to desktop, back-end services, front-end JavaScript. And we also have uh, what's called real user monitoring. And that's tracking the performance story as well as high-level analytics. So we're collecting every single page load, the timing on every image load, which views inside a mobile application people are looking at, how long it takes to be ready, how long network calls are taking from mobile devices, how long Ajax calls are taking. All of this stuff's going in there as well as the crash reporting. So we actually have the two pieces in there, which dials up the data volume by a couple of extra orders of magnitude as well. So there is a lot of data flowing through there, and we've done a lot of work to try and keep the the performance pretty workable. I won't lie, Mm. we typically run through a, a fairly consistent development cycle of six months where we feel like the system is doing really well and it's nice and fast and performant, and then six months of, oh, good, it's all burning down. <laughs> you know, let's re- rebuild the aircraft halfway through the flight, that sort of thing. So, yeah, there are a lot of interesting challenges. We're processing uh, probably a couple of billion data points a day now through the platform. And for the most part, and I know we're going to dig into this a little bit more, uh, for the most part, a lot of the system is built using uh, Microsoft technologies, using the .NET framework, .NET Core. There's a little bit of Go in the mix there. And then there's a, a reasonable amount of Java as well with relation to to some of the data storage technologies that we're using. You're on AWS? We are on AWS at the moment, yes. Mm, Okay. So you've got all these requests that are coming in, and they're making their way through your service infrastructure. Well, first they're getting load balanced, then they're making their way through your, your service infrastructure, and then they're getting put into these various data stores so that the users can understand the, you know, performance and the crashes and what's going on in their applications. So let's start with that load balancing layer. As you described, you've got a whole lot of different types of requests. You've got a high volume of those requests. What are you doing at the load balancing layer? So we're definitely making use of some of the load balancing technologies that that AWS provides that are fairly common across most cloud providers. And then behind that, we have effectively an auto-scale group of EC2 instances that are running our API layer code. And so they basically receive the data and then they verify a couple of quick things. So making sure, for example, that the client API key is valid, checking a couple of rate limiting things. If somebody's, you know, paying for for a certain level and they're way, way over, you know, we manage that. And then otherwise they put it onto an internal queuing system to be lifted and processed. And so that API layer used to be in Node.js. They're not particularly massive boxes. They're relatively small. And we ported that to Microsoft's.NET Core framework about a year ago, and we managed to increase the performance of that API layer by more than a 1,000% on there. I think it was actually about 2,000% improvement in throughput, which uh, alarmed a few mm. people who thought we must just be do- using Node wrong, which I, I don't. I disagree with them on that view. But uh, .NET Core has been a fantastic win for us on that API layer. It meant that we could process more per API node and therefore decrease the number. We didn't decrease it right down, but we brought it down enough that we could still have enough sort of servers in the warm pool, if you will, to auto-expand quickly if we needed to. So that's the first layer. When you say API layer, does that mean that it gets uh, these requests hit a load balancer first, and then the load balancer spreads them through the API layer, and the API layer 
routes the requests to different queues, or is there a queue in front of the API layer? No, it's the it's the standard ELB related stuff going to an auto scale group. Then what we do is we maintain a queue per application that we're tracking. And this allows us to solve for the noisy neighbor problems. You wouldn't want to be using a service where just because somebody else was using it heavily, it impacted your your performance. And so by doing it on a per app level, one, it gives finer grain control of rate limiting if needed. But it also means that if you're doing a striped worker approach where you're fetching you know x number of items off a uh, a y number of queues at a time you don't have to worry so much that one queue might be backing up a little bit it's not going to impact your processing time performance what are you using for queuing we're using rabbit at the moment quite comfortable we're not using like the aws built-in queuing services what we've typically found with a lot of the services that the cloud providers have is that they're wonderful if you are either not money conscious in the least or not doing a heck of a lot of of, uh, operations with them so frequently we end up where we'll do something like run our own um, instances running things like rabbit rather than be paying per thousand requests to a queuing service that sort of thing any reason you went with Rabbit over Kafka? I, I imagine the simplicity, I guess. It's the simplicity. There's also just the the way that we then pluck things off the various queues there. We've had some internal conversations about moving some things to Kafka over time, um, but it's just not been a, a sort of a, a burning need at this stage uh, uh-huh. because we don't do too much in the way of advanced routing, the way that the worker processes are architected. They kind of pick off a piece of work, and then I think there's, there's only really a couple of extra layers around the persistent side so it would be a pretty short um, workflow even even with it in there hmm. okay so you've got this high volume of events that are coming in they're getting load balanced across api servers the api servers are routing those requests to the appropriate queues based on maybe what the uh, the request is is this monitoring around image loading is this a crash report uh, based off of those different event types, you will have routing to different uh, API endpoints, and then which means different queues and different uh, workers. Am I? Do I have it right? That's correct. Yeah, I mean, you can kind of imagine like any software development process, the two products came together separately, so they do have their own processing models. They're, they're very closely aligned, but yeah, basically different API endpoint, different queues, different workers. The data storage, however, it often gets unified because one of the driving things that we wanted to improve in the space of, of monitoring and ops is that there's a lot of silos of data and we hate having silos because we think that the real uh, insight lies in being able to overlay this information together, bring it together in one place. So the data storage is, is kind of fairly unified. Got it. The workers that are pulling these events off of the queues, what are they doing exactly? What are these? What kind of classify kind of what the workers are doing? So we'll start with the crash reporting side. What they'll do is they'll pop pop off the record, uh, which is typically a JSON blob. They'll inspect that to see what the sender 
was sending from. So basically the provider, was it JavaScript, was it Java, C Sharp, whatnot. And the reason that's important is because we then will pick a a grouping or classifying strategy based on what it came from. And the reason for that is that we want to group up errors. If you had 10,000 errors but only four bugs, you'd actually want to see the four bugs with the counts next to how often that occurred. You wouldn't want to get 10,000 items to, to look at in a list. It wouldn't be very manageable. So we do this grouping and those groupers themselves, they have a lot of logic in them. So for example, our JavaScript one is smart enough to identify that even if an error looks wildly different between say Firefox in Chrome, they're actually the same fundamental bug. And they'll align things like stack trace lines and messages and, and be able to bundle them together to make sure that you've got a very actionable workload. Then what they're going to do is it's going to update a couple of various counters in places and then look to persist various bits of data to the different data stores that are needed. So the major data store that we have is an internally built storage engine, which overlays on S3, but does a whole bunch of smarts to make fetching of data more efficient the roll-ups of data it's kind of a little bit like the Hadoop file system in a way where it's it's bundling things up into into content blocks to make it much more efficient both on cost basis and a uh, computer performance basis to load data faster for our customers sorry so so what what exactly is getting stored in that Hadoop like file the system? entire raw data so for everything that Raygun receives we can give our customers 100% of the raw data that they had in there if they wanted to see it and go go to that level a lot of players in this space will give you averages and charts and not really let you access the raw data we store just hundreds of terabytes worth of data that our customers, especially larger customers, frequently like to pull out and feed into other systems. And then lastly, in that working process, it will also trigger a couple of internal notifications. And that will mean that depending on what the customers have configured, do they want alerts to Slack? Do they want to get an email? You know, what are their, the rules around that? But that's handled by a notifications worker. So that's the one time it pops something back onto a, a sort of a pub sub type system internally. What would be an example of one of those raw data files and what would lead to the creation of that raw data file? So the raw data file would be the JSON blob that the Raygun service received. So the entirety of the error context, everything we picked up at the time of the bug occurring, you know, environment information, server information, depending on where it's from, iOS, let's say it might be the device information, as much as we can collect at the time of the error to try and help our customers more rapidly resolve an issue. And the plus side of that is, is because we make all of that information available, when we do have some very large customers who have very serious security requirements and we can say look you can see literally everything we've collected there is no there's no hiding it behind things have a look at that and then our sdks include filtering so if there is some piece of data that they don't want to Mm. provide they can filter that out we of course have some defaults in there around things like credit card numbers and social security and and whatnot but uh, they can always add more so when you're talking about the events that are doing monitoring like when you're just monitoring the application but a crash has not occurred, uh, does, the, does the storage model differ? The storage model doesn't change a whole lot. It's, it's a fairly consistent story in there. It just, we don't have to do things quite so much around the grouping. Like we might group based on URLs, which is pretty straightforward to do, or, or a page and activity names inside of a mobile app, but it's fairly consistent. Mm-hmm. So let's, let's talk through the ingestion and the processing of a single crash event. So a crash event occurs, you've got this JSON blob that contains a ton of information about the 
the uh, application at the time mm-hmm. of the crash, and it gets queued up, and then it's getting processed by the worker. And what's what's the unit of deployment for these workers? It's is it a virtual machine? Is it a container? No, it's not containerized yet. We are still a little bit old school on that front, where we use Octopus Deploy and we deploy updated versions of these services to a cluster of different machines. What we've found is that while there is some spikiness to the volume, because we're very much a, a global business, there's only a short period of the day really where it's particularly quiet because we've got a lot of customers in Europe and a lot of customers in North America and a lot of customers in, also in Australia. So for the most part, it's, it, it spikes a little bit, but it's more one customer spiking doesn't typically cause us too much stress. It's more the, the overall daily sort of ebbs and flows. So we have a, a fix set in there with the ability to rapidly add additional uh, instances with that software on there, and then they'll pick up different sections of the queue to to manage that scaling there these workers that are processing the the json blob so how what kind of worker are they doing in order to process that before they put it into the storage layer so that's where they're doing things like reading it in and analyzing for the grouping triggering notifications to customers updating various counters for people because obviously we don't always count everything up in, in real time. We do for the most part, but they'll update various things. They they update the customer usage information so that we understand that how much customers are utilizing the service. They don't have to do a heck of a lot, to be honest, before they're passed off to the, the storage subsystems for people to then mm. come into the application and actually analyze what's going on. Right. Yeah. Okay, I got it. So they're just kind of updating things that might be viewable in a dashboard uh, or just stats, and and then they're they're rapidly passing it off to the storage layer. And these workers are written in .NET. And I think did you say okay? You said the API layer you re, you rewrote from mm-hmm. Node to .NET. Were the workers always in .NET? The workers have always been in, in .NET full framework, not .NET Core yet. We probably will be moving them to .NET Core at some stage, but it's not a hugely high priority right now. We also do have a little bit of go in there around how we manage the symbolification of crashes from iOS, and that's just a small service that's orchestrating the, the symbolification process. What's symbolification? So in iOS or in an unmanaged language like C or C++, when you get a crash, you get a, a memory dump, right? And it's not readable to a human. And so with iOS and those other languages, you, that's where you get the symbol file. So maybe a PDB file or a DSIM file for iOS or Xcode-generated outputs. And, and basically, if Raygun has copies of those, which we have integrations to automatically pull them up for people, we will automatically go, okay, we've got this memory dump and we've got this symbol thing let's do some magic to turn it into a human readable stack trace so that the jeff can read it and go oh it was line 49 of this class and this function rather than Mm. here's a raw memory dump of of hex values that mean nothing to me Mm. so that that's what symbolification is about i see so the just talking about the dot net the dot net workers that are getting these json blobs they're making some updates to counters and things and then they're storing the JSON blob in your S3. I think you said S3, right? It's, it's, it's just backed kind of, off it, of it. S3, but yeah, there's a layer in front of that that does a lot of smarts for how we, we roll up. And like I said, it's very very similar model to the Hadoop file system. You know, like mm. So let's say we've got 
100,000 errors come through, we might roll that up into a single block that we can then index and pull data out of very, very efficiently. Oh. But we can pass that block around so we don't have to make 100,000 requests to S3. You know, we, we don't have to worry that the latency per request would kill performance because we've, we've done a lot of analysis to find what the ideal size is for our infrastructure to make sure we can get a lot of data very quickly, cheaply, efficiently. Wow. Maybe we could talk about the file system a little bit later, because yep. that sounds like a pretty interesting conversation. I'm sure <laughs> implementing that took a lot of work. It did. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we did a show recently about Keybase, which is uh, kind of this identity, new identity platform, but they have a file system. They wrote their own file system, and it was just always, I don't know, talking about writing your own file system is, so is always a challenge, even if you're building it on top of S3, I'm sure. <laughs> as, but as far as the workers... They are processing these large JSON blobs. So I saw a talk that you gave about the garbage collection and the memory management that you have to do in your .NET worker layer. Is is the main reason for that garbage collection, the work that you did around garbage collection, is that because of those large JSON objects? Yeah, so you're talking about the, the video where I talked about the source map processing worker, is that yeah, correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. So in, in that one, uh, and we'll, we'll sidetrack a little bit into that story because it was quite fascinating. Uh, so source maps are very similar to effectively a symbolification process where when you minify your crash reports from, sorry, when you minify your JavaScript and you combine files, right, you're used to seeing those errors that will say something happened on line one at position 34,000 and you're like, well, I don't typically write my programs as a single line 34,000 characters long. That's clearly a post-minification process on my, my JavaScript, right? And so a source map file can be generated by most minifying engines and that allows us to also unwind it back to the original version of the code that you had. So it would say, actually, it's in line 490, column 10, you know, here's the code. So it makes it easier to debug. Without them, it's kind of a pain in the butt. And this was a few years ago now, and I remember talking with our uh, CTO, and he was like, oh, yeah, we've just put in our third machine for our source map processing. You know, I'm a, I'm a nerdy guy, and I was like, really, three machines for source map? How many are we processing? And he's like, well, we're doing millions and millions of them a day. And I was like, oh, man, I, I don't want to keep adding machines. I want to make this faster. And so at the time, we were using Mozilla's source map processing engine, which is open source and I looked at this thing and I was like okay I, I can you know I, I can probably port this over to .NET and so I did and then uh, this was like a, a weekend project for me and then I ran the profilers like crazy to get this down and ultimately we ended up where we, we moved the source map processing to a .NET service where a single machine out of the three could process our entire day's volume in like one hour or something like that. And so yeah. that talk that's on the Channel 9 website, basically I was talking about the ways that I approach the performance handling for that and there was some low level stuff but whenever you're building on a language that is that has a garbage collector so you know any, anything like Java or .NET are the, the two most uh, common ones today but there are others, you really need to be aware that the benefit of of having garbage collection is that you know you don't have to worry about the allocations and deallocations and things like that. But there is a cost. Everything comes at a cost. And so one of the things that's been fascinating is that because allocations are so cheap and easy to do without thinking is a lot of developers are allocating memory like crazy, not realizing that there's a huge performance penalty in that. And of course, you're thinking, well, hang on a minute, isn't 
memory fast? Isn't that how our databases are getting fast? Because we just put the data in, in memory and that makes it quick. And that's where you've got to remember that, you know, accessing the L1 cache on a CPU is about half a nanosecond. L2 cache is about two nanoseconds. And then say your your main system RAM is more like 100 nanoseconds. So if you're actually writing and creating data all the time in, in memory and going backwards and forwards, one, that's actually quite quite a bit slower. And secondly, of course, you've now got this additional processing layer, which is your garbage collector that's having to mark and sweep the memory or however it wants to do the, the handling of, of clearing that RAM from time to time. But it's kind of ended up where us as developers can be very, very efficient at writing code in a in a garbage collected world. At the downside that we often don't think too hard about it on how we're how much memory we're actually allocating. And so when when I was working on that particular little service, you know, I was kind of going, well, I want to make sure I don't allocate much memory. And I suspect you're referring to the fact that the, the JSON data, so the way that a source map is structured is in, is in JSON. And it was there were many things that we looked at, which was like, hey, well, what if we didn't actually deserialize the JSON data into a first class object? We actually only need to read it once and we can just use, we, we already have it read in as a string. Why don't we just read it like it's a character array? and just mark the points we need and pull out the data as we need it. Things like that, which dramatically accelerated the, the rate of handling those those source maps. And then also, if you watch that video, I think I go through about five or six different things. Like, for example, hey, well, if we, if we only need to parse the source map 50% of the way, the plus side is we don't even need to read the next 50% of it. So, you know, the fastest, mm. the, the best way to make code fast is to do nothing at all. And so there's a lot of those shortcuts. There were things like not serializing the object. There was there was all sorts of stuff went in there. And I remember actually uh, bugging my friend Nick on that weekend on Skype because I'd be like, hey, I've just shaved off another 25% of the, the processing time, you know, <laughs> and all this. The only thing that makes me sad reflecting on that time was that I don't know if it was out at that stage, but there's an amazing tool in the .NET community now called Benchmark.net. And you can do, in a very similar structure to how you would write your unit tests, you can just augment things with benchmark attributes. And it will tell you, for example, how much memory is being allocated, what stage of the garbage collector. It does all this, the statistical handling for median times, mean times, standard deviation, what's the baseline of the, the machine, all sorts of cool stuff. I didn't have that at the time. I was just using a full desktop profiler, which was still good enough. But uh, I, yeah, I kind of need to go back and have, have a fresh set of eyes look over it and probably port some of those tests over to uh, benchmark.net. So sorry, that was quite a uh, <laughs> segue, but yeah, that's the sort of thing no, we look fine. at. <laughs> no, it's right. It's a good good example. So to be clear, so you've got this this large crash report, essentially, and you're trying to figure out how much of this crash report do we actually need to pull into the worker or how much do we well how first of all how much do we need to deserialize well no just to be clear so what happens is we always do everything with the crash report but in this case you're saying and if it's javascript and if there's a source map available then we need to do a a basically a post process on the original stack trace to make it more human readable Mm. so it's only a it's a it's more like an if statement with a few variables in there get checked and if that's the case then go and do this extra piece of work similarly for ios you know for example if somebody hasn't provided us a dsim file well we can't symbolify it right so it just go through as is but if we have it we want to make sure that we enrich the the stack trace to make it human readable with the symbolification Mm. process so there's just a couple of little edge cases in there you know that 
right. it was quite involved building out Raygun. It's a fairly mature platform these days. There's a lot of things it can do. <laughs> yeah, and so you're not you're not control because like I I worked at a place one time this options trading company and and the, you know a similar you know like any trading company has a really high volume of stuff that comes through it and there was a lot of work that would go into tweaking the garbage collector in java and this was my first job out of school so i had no idea like how do you do any <laughs> garbage collection tweaking but i would see these people uh, that these engineers and they would be you know pulling up these these java tools for like assessing how much memory is in the i guess these different like the eden space or the you know these different like garbage collection tiers yep. in java but that's not what you're doing here you were just basically you were you were before stuff gets pulled into the place where it's going to be managed by the garbage collector, you're saying, well, do we even need to to have this this data be pulled into memory? Do we even need to inst- do we even need to create this object in memory? Is that right? That's absolutely correct. So, so to your point there as well, like Java seems to have a few more um, different garbage collection options out there. And in .NET land, there's primarily like a client garbage collector and a server garbage collector. And then there's obviously new versions of the garbage collector that come with different versions of the framework. So it's not quite as rich as the Java community. You can also control in a sometimes non-deterministic way how some of the things like giving hints to the garbage collector and code but on the whole and this has actually been a huge driver for a lot of the performance improvements that Microsoft have made in the .NET Core framework is that if you just don't allocate the memory then you don't give work to the garbage collector right so if we can reduce those allocations as much as possible the code actually goes faster because memory allocations one are expensive and two you have that somewhat hidden costs that the garbage collector now has more work to do as well so by focusing on the number of bytes that get allocated by a piece of code and bringing that down all the better and so we did a lot of that sort of work early on and we're still doing that today literally one of our team members jason is working on some of the way that we do grouping code for the real user monitoring data around the pages and like now it's fairly common where he is posting pull requests that actually include the benchmark.net output of before and after to say, here's the the time it took, here's the bytes that were being allocated, and, and here's where it is now to demonstrate performance changes. How much money can you save on these kinds of performance improvements? What sort of savings does it translate to? Well, so we've had some fairly significant wins in the past around these improvements. I mean, at the time, years ago, when we did the source map one, for example, I think that was a relatively quick saving of about $1,000 a month. We were really, really small at the time. But Further to that, because it was only using a fraction of the one of the servers, we could also put other things on there. So there were additional savings there. We find that today most of our costs are actually driven by the data storage side of things, not the, the compute intensive mm. side. And so that's where we're starting to look at things like how do we that, – that's partly why we started looking at like our own storage subsystem a couple of years ago. And that was a huge win for us. That actually saved us – I think it's, I mean, it's probably now cumulatively saved us several hundred thousand dollars since that went into to operation. Because, I mean, of course, if we bring something down by, say, $10,000 a month, well, a year later, that's $120,000 that's been saved. It's not like we can stop doing data storage next month. It just improves things. Mm. So we're always looking at that. And that's, I think that's one of the strengths 
that I can help bring to our business as being a, a CEO with a tech background is I can sort of have these conversations with our CTOs, my business partner, and we can sort of weigh up, hey, is this a situation where we just want to throw service at it or do we actually have – and I consider performance things a form of technical debt as well. Even if the code is reasonably fine, hey, maybe we could just make this more efficient and not need to go and get – a bunch more servers. Usually it's dependent on what else is going on in the business at the time. Maybe we're working on, you know, when we were building out the real user monitoring system, obviously a lot of our engineers were busy working on that. And so we didn't have the bandwidth. So we just had to say, look, we're going to throw more servers at it for now, make a note, we'll go back and turn this stuff up. But you know, it varies. I do think that's a huge thing, which is evaluating when to look at performance improvements. I see a lot of engineers, one, they'll either think that the performance issue lies somewhere where it doesn't or it's not actually a performance improvement that does make the business save money or it's not something that impacts the customer in a positive way. So that's they're always important things to consider as well. And generally, I think from a strategic standpoint, it makes sense to look at uh, saving money as a, a core tenant because you're not exactly in a business where you have complete dominance over the field. You're not like Google or Facebook where you can just say, okay, we don't really need to worry about competitors. We'll just like buy all the stuff that we need because we sort of have a monopoly. We're just trying to cement that monopoly. There are some competitors in the field. And so keeping the price at a, in a competitive tier is is probably pretty important to you. Yeah, I look at it more from the the. I mean, you're right. We're not a Google or a, or a, or a Microsoft. You know, we're, we're we're working our way there. One of the things that's a bit different about Raygun to a lot of players in the space is we're not a hugely VC backed company, right? So we're not just burning mm. cash for sake of it. We actually have a very strong business, unlike most of our competitors that are bleeding cash trying to, you know, soak up hit you know customer account. Raygun actually is a very stable and still very fast growing business and the way again that I look at it is any dollar I'm not giving Jeff Bezos is another dollar I can spend on growing my business <laughs> so <laughs> you know that's that's sometimes our logic is you know gross margins in a business so you look at what's our cost to serve a customer how much do we spend on support infrastructure credit card processing all that sort of stuff and that's going to be a fixed amount that we have to pay every single month to support our customers. Well, the smaller I can make that, right, the more I can spend on marketing, the more I can invest in getting more engineers to develop additional features that add value to our customers, all of that sort of stuff. I'm more driven by how, how can we how can we grow faster and help our customers more because we're efficient as opposed to just saying, hey, can I can I make it the cheapest product in the space? We have there are there are cheaper products mm-hmm. in the space, but you know, the first thing they'll that the, the that happens when you dig under the covers is oh wait you're not actually storing all the data oh you're heavily sampling oh I couldn't like I, I couldn't tell you how many hundreds of customers right. have moved to our platform because they were like well it was kind of like trying to explore a, a cave with a with the um, a, a candle versus having you know floodlighting if you don't have all of that data it's it's quite difficult it's kind of like this there's, there's tools and I'm not picking on specific competitors here but in the wider monitoring space where all they talk about is averages. Right, so because we have all the data, we'll often give people the P nineties, P ninety nine, you know, the distribution data of what what what's going on, and the the great analogy that I've always loved about why if you are looking at averages, you are looking at lies, is let's say Jeff, you and I, 
we, we go and fill a stadium with homeless people and then we invite Bill Gates in. Well, on average, everybody in there is a multimillionaire, right? <laughs> Averages are utter, utter lies. And so if you're using any tools that are monitoring things and they're giving you like, here's our average response time, or you can be sure probably no one experiences that actual time. Um, you need to see the, the wider distribution. And that's where we kind of see it as, hey, we're at a point now where the costs of storing large amounts of data, especially if you're quite clever about it, is not a huge, huge number. It still has some cost, but yeah, mm-hmm. you, you want to store it all. <laughs> yeah, well, and you know, just another note on the whole like competitive landscape of software. Like my perspective in reporting on these different things is even the products that look like they are in in very competitive spaces. Like one of the er- the early narratives when I was starting Software Engineering Daily was like. Who's the cloud provider of choice? Is it Azure? Is it Google? Is it AWS? And as you drill into it, you realize, oh, cloud computing is actually a tremendous blue ocean space where there is room for lots of different people to arc out what they want their domain specificity to be. And as I'm sure you have come to realize in your business is pretty much the same thing when it comes to monitoring and crash reporting where this is pretty much a fundamental thing that people want in their applications and there are just different flavors of it that make sense in different contexts. Yeah, absolutely. There's no one right thing for everybody. That's that's sure. Uh, absolutely correct. I mean, there's plenty of free tools people can try and use Except, and things like that. I mean, yeah. that would be another, though, usually false economy. Let's go and try and set up something for free and manage it ourselves rather than spend a couple of dollars that I see. It's, it's, it's usually mm. a bad idea. <laughs> mm. So this this file system that you built on top of S3 to store all of these large files, like these large I guess, basically dumps of what's going on in the system when a crash occurs. You know, the, the reason you built a custom file system on S3 was, if I recall what you said, is to categorize similar crashes that occur, and then you want to put all these similar crashes in a block together so that that block is easy to manage it, when you're moving it around S3. Is that is that right? Uh, yes and no. It, it's not so much that the errors have to be similar. It's stored in a chronological order. And then what we maintain is several layers of storage. So we obviously have in-memory. Then we have uh, local EBS SSD-backed stuff. And then we have S3. And we cache the hot data first. And then it's rolled up into these blocks. So let's say rather than having mm. – I'll, I'll use some round numbers. Let's say there was 100,000 crash reports and they stacked up to, let's say, 100 megabytes of data. So we put them into a single block. We attach our own metadata to that that allows us to quickly be able to pick things out of that block very, very fast and also reduce some of the space sizes as well. And then they get stored in various cached buckets all the way down. So that way that the, the warmest data is obviously loaded very, very quickly. But it also means that there's a process there that can handle um, massive, massive spikes in, in data coming through and how that then blocks things up. And then we can do that longer-term archival storage. So, you know, a Raygun customer can come in and say, hey, I'd like to export the last, you know, 
six months worth of our data and they might have had you know 40 million errors a month occurring which is not unheard of and it might turn into a multi-gig download for them but we can actually fetch all of that data out of there very efficiently you can kind of imagine uh, even with what the cost of get requests against s3 is we probably wouldn't want to be storing hundreds of millions of individual crash reports and having to pull them one by one would just take one too long two cost of fortune and three it's it's actually quite slow to hit s3 by default if, if you were just fetching da- uh, customer data from there which is why we like to keep some of the, the more recent data warm um, close to the source so it's kind of got a, a classic caching strategy in there that's layered what are you using for the caching so we manage that ourselves for the disk storage in s3 where that's just the blocks will get moved around based on you know the the temperature if you will if that's recent data it's it's in there for the caching that's done in in memory we are effectively just using the the dotnet cache providers that, that are built into the framework which to be honest with you i haven't looked in recent times at what their various eviction strategies are around that but uh it, it hasn't been an issue mm. for us so i haven't had to look very deeply at it i see okay so the workers will hand off some will hand off the the file to s3 as well as to an in-memory cache elsewhere no they just pass it straight through to that storage processor and then what it'll do is make sure that it ultimately ends up in s3 as part of a block that's been processed as well as in various caches too so let's say jeff you get a, an email that says or a slack notification or hip chat or whatever it says hey this this new error has occurred you want to click on it you want to go into the raygun app and see all the data right there it may still not have made it through to s3 at that point but it can be served out of one of those hotter caches leading up to it and that storage service is, oh. as well aware of where it's at so we want to get to the point where if you get a notification it might be within two seconds three seconds of the error actually occurring and you can see the entire report within the application so we used to get more people you know early adopters were like holy cow this is amazing sometimes i get the notification of the error before my error page is even loaded (laughs) so that was always always our, our goal I see. So the reason you you cache it before writing it to S3 is so that it's in a place where the the customer can easily and quickly access it, or like just on the fly, like after shortly after the crash has occurred. So they can access it quickly, and secondly, because we do want to collect up and blocks of data. So maybe a like say could be a hundred thousand, ten thousand, depends on the size. We want to then bring them into a single writable chunk that then gets written. To S3, so it may not actually get to S3 for a few minutes, you know. Oh. And we don't want to have you wait until it gets to that stage. We want to be able to give it to you very quickly. That and that's again part of that whole right. idea that if there's spiky ingestion stuff, that service we we basically don't really have any issues with it. it just kind of quietly sits there and uh, and pulls the data back through. Yeah. So you can imagine a scenario where one of your customers has like ten or fifteen crashes that are super similar within a single minute and you would want to batch as those crashes come in you would want to just keep them in memory and then batch writes of 10 to 15 crashes out to s3 in these blocks yeah absolutely yep although the numbers are a lot more than 10 (laughs) (laughs) okay i can imagine (laughs) and and again sorry sorry to drill in this i find it interesting but What's the advantage to getting those in blocks together? Because S3 is going to 
one, charge you on the number of writes you do. So if I write if I write a thousand one K blocks and I write one one thousand K block, one of them is a thousand times more expensive than the other. <laughs> so it sufficiently mm. reduces our writes. Secondly, there's a there's obviously a latency to any request, whether it's write or read or whatnot, it's a round trip. And so we did a bunch of analysis ourselves on finding what the optimal block size was that would give let's say you hit a really old error. Right, and it had to come out of the S three block thing. What was the time frame that we were we were we thought was acceptable for you to have to wait for that crash report to be ready? And it worked out. I mean, it was basically a couple of seconds. And so we measured and built out an entire chart that said, okay, based on on file size across S three, what's our time to get this back? Um, and so we used that to define the 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 size of the block. So, and then lastly, because one, it reduced the S3 costs, it also reduced the latency overhead because we weren't having to pull things. It also enabled us to do things like allow customers to export massive amounts of data. And then it also sped up the time at the front end with those caching layers because customers didn't have to wait for it to be written. So way back when we first launched the service, it wasn't uncommon that you would get a notification that would say, hey, Jeff, this error occurred, and you'd click on the link and it would say, Hey, wow! You're really fast. Uh, wait a few moments for us to have to, to get that data stored, and it'll be ready in a moment. We wanted to mm. get rid of that, which which we did. So yeah, it was basically a, a, a triple or quadruple win. So customers got faster service, both in terms of day to day usage and time to first error visibility. We saved a bunch of money on the back end, and it made it and it unlocked a bunch of features that would probably have been cost prohibitive either on price or performance using the older model. So you're not only storing these crashes on S3, but you also want to index these, at least some of the metadata perhaps about the crash in Elasticsearch or probably keeping them in other file systems or other databases also. Can you talk about the the multi-model database situation? (laughs) Yeah. So for example, we... We have a search system using Elasticsearch. We have a time series data store, and then we have a relational data store because if you try and use one data store for all those different types of information, you can end up tying yourself in knots. So we have these different data stores that where information is getting stored. Well, we And we also have Redis in there for a little bit of live data to show people what's going on. So it, it really just routes to how we want to present the data to the customer. Hmm. It, do you have... Uh, what like what's your pattern for writing to these different data sources? Well, it, it effectively so let's say it was a crash report. That worker is going to ensure that it fires off a indexing job to Elasticsearch to index it for search. It's going to send the the data off to the storage system for that long term storage and the raw error report. Mm-hmm. And it's also in the, in the case of crash reporting, it's going to update some various counters in a relational database for the group level information: how many times this occurred, how many users were affected, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. We do a lot more time series data on the performance side of things. And so in the performance tracking system, that would also fire off to, we use uh, Druid for our time series data. Oh, yeah. cool. Okay, so so just to, just to refresh people on, on the end-to-end architecture of this system, because I think this has been a great lesson so far in, in how to handle high volumes of events. So 
I'm using my podcast app, or somebody, some user is using the podcast app that I developed. I'm the developer. I'm using your system, Raygun, to see the crashes that occur. A crash occurs on my user's podcast mm-hmm. app. The crash report is sent in a JSON blob to Raygun servers. First, it hits the load balancer. The load balancer sends that request to an API. Load is load balancing requests across API servers. So that request is routed to to an API server. The API server routes it to uh, a queue in front of workers that process mm-hmm. crash reports. One of the workers pulls the crash report off of the queue and starts to process it. And it's basically figuring out the uh, some aspects about that event in order to figure out what to tell the storage worker, I guess. And then it hands it off to the storage worker. The storage worker puts it in Elasticsearch, MySQL, Druid, and eventual and batches writes of this type of crash to S3. And then the user can access all of these different data sources. Is that correct? More or less. Yep. You've got most, most you've got a 99% right. There's a couple of those things happen in the actual crash worker, but uh, for the most part, yes. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. It's quite it's quite a um there's a lot of moving parts. <laughs> yeah, well it sounds like a pretty interesting system to to wake up every day and work on because I'm sure there's lots of performance tuning things that you can do throughout that process, but at the same time a lot of it seems to seems like it, it's probably a stable architecture. <laughs> Absolutely. And so it's, it is relatively stable. And, and this goes almost full circle back to how we started, which is what we typically find is for six months, the system is just absolutely, you know, rocking it along. It's really good. And then our fantastic customers and, and sales team and things like that keep closing more and more business and, and, and some little cracks start to appear and we kind of go, oh, goodness, mm. it's, it's it's time for the next round of work in there. So, you know, it, it, it comes and goes, but they're certainly really fun problems. And they, you know, I, I'll be honest, back when I first got into the, the industry, I used to think of, you know, oh, working at Google and the scale of the problems. And, you know, <laughs> we're, we're, we're definitely not at Google's scale yet, but it's one of those ones where you are starting to go, oh, how, how would I, how could I cost effectively, mm. you know, juggle a few petabytes of data? And how can I real-time query some of this to give our customers the visibility that they need, you know, and sub-second response times if they want to slice and dice it and, and things like that. that that's the high-quality problems to have to think about. Totally. So why... What is so I, you talked earlier? Like you don't necessarily have bursty workloads, so because you have stable traffic throughout the day. Well, it's more that we've got to the point where the bursts are. You know, when it was our first hundred customers, right? Because we've got thousands of organizations now using us. Um, but when it was earlier on, you might get one customer and go, "Oh my goodness!" But we have sort of evolved to the point now where there's probably at any one point two or three or ten customers that are having some massive meltdown. But now it's still not, you know, that significant mm-hmm. to us uh, to have to deal right. with it. Yeah, it's more like st- steady, so st- steady customer growth is is uh, is a bigger concern of yours than bursty customer usage. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, can you talk about like what are some of the things that that are starting to break? Like why? Because I mean, the way that you've described the architecture so far, it seems like yeah, just horizontally scale that to the moon. Why not? Yep, absolutely. So examples of that uh, would be, like I said. 
where I mentioned the working with the worker layer, where we can reasonably quickly spin up an additional instance to add additional work processing. We'd actually really like to try and move it to more of a containerized workload that auto expands and does all of that and is a little bit smarter, that sort of thing. We are in the process at the moment as, a, as well around some of those data stores, which are horizontally scalable at just making them be a little bit more programmatically driven, if you will, you know, so using various ops tools to make sure that we can spin up and shut down instances based on what's needed. So we're doing a bunch of work around that. And to be honest, that's that's a little bit about cost optimization and more just about the maturity of the infrastructure and taking it up a level mm-hmm. in there. So there are the areas where we might say, hey, maybe we're adding one server every couple of days. We need to make sure that this is sort of fall off a log easy and, and almost anyone on the team can do it rather than saying, well, there's a couple of people who manage the AWS account and they can go in and manually run up something off an AMI, things like that that we're improving around. We also continually just find various areas to improve. So, for example, that storage system that we've talked a lot about today, we had our initial data structure for those chunks. So that's been in operation for a few years now. And we actually have a V2 version of that that data format for the chunks that basically gives us an, an, an extra order of magnitude improvement in response times for customers because we were finding, hey, now that we actually have millions and millions of these giant chunks, you know, what can we do to improve upon this? Um, and so, and how can we append extra metadata to them to provide extra querying and, and filtering? So there's things like that that just sort of, you know, get slower with time. We want to improve those. Yeah, range of stuff. There's also new features always add additional demand. So like, when we first put in that storage system, we went, oh, cool, now we can build an export feature really mm-hmm. easily. So we put that in. We do have APIs available for querying data. Specifically, enterprise customers like to do that a lot. And so, you know, hey, maybe there's a query that's just not very efficient, so we need to work on that. It's just every day there's always little extra bits, and that's where monitoring is so important for understanding where are the hotspots, where is our time mm-hmm. going. All right, well, I know, I know we're yep. nearing the end of our time. Uh, we've talked about, pretty much the full well the high level view of the architecture since you're the ceo tell me a little bit about running the business like just to close off what are some non-obvious aspects of running raygun well i mean i guess as a background i i i obviously have learned how to build out a sales team which is what we've got here in seattle so i moved to america to build out the sales team in the u.s where we're still headquartered in wellington new zealand so that's been interesting also marketing so marketing team reports through to me and they've done a wonderful job at getting the name out there i mean you know credit to i think it was freya has been working with you as well right um jeff on getting on your radar yes it's great so i'm yeah, understanding all that. Yeah, I think she's she's fantastic, which is which is good. And we've just you know learning the different areas, and that's that's kind of the the day to day thing. Also managing you know uh, being on a board of directors, you know answering to them, understanding investment rounds. Like you basically end up becoming the ultimate generalist. Really, the thing that I found hard is the um, transition from being a software engineer. I think people naturally will always fall back to what they're most comfortable with. And so a few years ago, what I would find is that I would frequently end up writing a bit of code for the system. And it was like, you know what, as much as I enjoy doing that, it doesn't have the biggest impact for the company. We've got a big team of people far, far smarter than me you know, to write code. Um, why am I doing this? And I kind of realized that it was because I'd either be putting off something that I needed to do that was a bit more <laughs> difficult. 
And so I actually ended up going out and I moved to a um, a 13-inch laptop. You know, it was bloody awkward to write code on. I couldn't run Visual Studio instances all over the show. And it was a forcing function to be like, you know what, if you're the CEO, generally speaking, you should probably be fine with a with like a Chromebook and possibly even an iPad. You, you've just got to send emails <laughs> yeah. and use the internet, right? Like, So I had to force myself out of that comfort zone a few years ago. Now, to be honest, I still absolutely love to code. I have a beefy as hell machine at home that uh, I, I do various bits and pieces on in the weekends. And, you know, I've been exploring things like TensorFlow because I, I want to make sure that my I still have a good, strong understanding of this. And I love talking with our tech team about these performance issues. Gets me off. <laughs> you know, I love perform- high-performance software. But I just – that was, that was a, a difficulty is, you know, the business would grow a lot faster when I wasn't writing code because mm. I'd be focused on the growth. That was, that was a big transition. And I guess lastly to that point, coming from engineering land, we tend to think as engineers that we're like the smartest people in the room. Bad news, folks. <laughs> we're not. There's smart people in every category of the business. You know, they, they're all delivering value in different ways. Um, I think there's a certain argument to be made that perhaps the uh, – the Dilbert cartoons for 20 years have uh, perhaps overinflated our egos about our talents versus uh, other people. But, yeah, um, I completely yeah. agree. I mean, try <laughs> try putting the engineers in charge of uh, enterprise sales and, and you'll see what happens. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you'll see how smart they are. <laughs> I still remember when we first got into some of the pay-per-click advertising and there was a couple of engineers who were like, this will never work. I've never, ever, ever clicked on an ad. And I was like, you think you've never clicked on that. Uh, you yeah. think you've never been, you know, and it's like, guess what? It works really well. Yep. But yeah, yeah. And I'm not just saying that because now I'm officially the pointy-haired boss, just to be clear. <laughs> <laughs> Though I possibly am the dumbest person in the room. But. <laughs> <laughs> All right, JD. Well, it's been great chatting, you know, really good show and look forward to mm. hearing more from Raygun in the future. Yeah, absolutely. It's been been my pleasure, Jeff. I really appreciate it. And uh, if you can't tell, I can wax lyrically on just about anything. So I'm uh, <laughs> right. happy to do another show All sometime. Right. Thank you. Sounds good. Wow.